Hello, everybody, and welcome to On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. This is Barry Botino. I'm an associate editor at Safety and Health. With me, as always, are my fellow associate editors, Alan Ferguson and Kevin Drewley. Hello, gentlemen, and a very happy new year to you both. Hello. Happy new year to you, too. Well, this is our January 2023 episode, number 35 in our podcast history. Wherever you're listening today, thank you for spending some time with us. It is definitely appreciated. We know that many of you have had a unique journey into safety, and we want to hear more about it for our My Story feature in the magazine. Submit your personal stories about how you got into the safety field by emailing us at safehealth at nsc.org. You can also view past My Story entries and catch up on other news from around the safety world on our website, safetyandhealthmagazine.com. We'd also like to share that January is Member Appreciation Month at the National Safety Council. That's when NSC takes time to thank and celebrate its members. Visit us online at nsc.org MAM23 to access free materials and resources, including a digital safety observances calendar, a social media kit, webinars on first aid and creating safety resolutions, and much more. Not a member? You can join the Council's 13,000 safety partners by logging on to nsc.org join. In this month's episode, Alan will explore his feature story on tech trends in safety. We'll also be joined by veteran safety consultant and speaker Jack Jackson to talk about the ins and outs of storytelling for safety pros in our latest installment of Five Questions With. And the three of us will also share some important lessons in our What Did We Learn segment. Is everyone ready? For the first time in 2023, here we go. Each month here at On the Safe Side, we take a look at a feature story from the latest issue of Safety and Health magazine, which we call our Deep Dive segment. In the January issue of Safety and Health, Alan explores the latest in new and emerging technologies as the occupational safety world sets its sights on 2023. Alan covers a variety of facets of this topic, including how technology can help address workplace hazards, as well as the importance of employee engagement and employer buy-in. So, Alan, without further ado, could you please refrain from imagining stock intergalactic future music for a few minutes and lead us on this latest deep dive? Well, thank you so much for that introduction. I was going to do my uh, sound effect as far as a UFO. Okay, I think I did pretty well on that one. Um, So, yeah, thank you so much for that introduction. Uh, Basically, this story, we've covered a lot of, um, in our annual tech trends feature, we've covered a lot of um, kind of technologies, but we've never really covered the human side of it, kind of accepting technology and overcoming resistance. And as you all in our audience likely know, safety technology has made many strides in recent years and likely continue to make even greater strides in the future, becoming more and more prevalent in workplaces. And, and we're talking about items such as we've previously covered in, in our tech trends features, which are wearables, artificial intelligence-enabled camera systems, telematics, exoskeletons, virtual and or augmented reality products, robots and or cobots, and the list kind of goes on and on. And I won't belabor that part. 
Um, workers, though, also can be very suspicious of those new technologies, and this is not a new concept. One legend around the word sabotage, for example, is that centuries ago, workers wearing wooden shoes known as sabots were angry about new machinery and would put the shoes in them to gum up the works. Again, that origin story is considered apocryphal at best. But the term Luddite actually does come from a secret organization of English textile workers in the 1800s who destroyed machinery, and Luddite now means someone who is opposed or resistant to a new technology. And and workers are probably somewhat right to be a, at least a little suspicious. The technology has take, taken away jobs in the past, let's be honest, and tracking software easily can be used in the wrong ways. And that's two examples. But this is where building or maintaining trust with employees, culture, etc., are also important. And this story has two main pieces of advice. Number one, involve employees early in the process of a technological change. And number two, start small with a pilot program rather than going too big or too fast with a rollout. Alan, in the story, you mentioned one issue that employers may not think about. How can a pilot program help employers avoid this certain important issue? And the issue you mentioned is the fit of a technological solution. Because many technologies are new and emerging, they may not have been used or tested by a wide population or with a diversity of people. And one example in the story is exoskeletons, which may fit men better than women or may not fit people of a certain height or weight. Workers also might have issues using personal protective equipment or tool belts in conjunction with certain exoskeletons. Sarah Bellini-Ross, a safety advancement and innovation project coordinator at SAIF, an Oregon-based nonprofit organization providing workers' compensation insurance in the state, gave another example and actually showed this during the interview on Zoom. It's augmented reality goggles that may not fit all head sizes. The goggles she showed were too big for her head, so she they didn't line up with her eye, which is very important when it comes to AR. And she said, you can really learn a lot from a pilot program. Um, You can figure out what are those pain points and you can make those changes early on before you waste a lot of time, resources, and energy on something that may not be the right fit. And also during a pilot program, employers can see if there are issues with fit before spending money and finalizing a purchase. And Sabrina Freewind, who is Sarah's colleague at SAIF, and she's a a safety and health innovations program manager, advises employers to frequently check in with employees during a pilot program. And if there are issues with a product, talk to the manufacturer first. If that manufacturer can't provide an appropriate product, the employer may have to look at its options. What are some reasons that workers may be hesitant to embrace a technology? And what are some ways employers can help turn around those attitudes or overcome that resistance? So among the reasons for resistance to technology, maybe the employee thinks it's too difficult to use or it's going to make his or her job more difficult. And those two concepts come from a a technology acceptance model by the University of Michigan's Fred Davis that was published in 1989. That model has two key parts. It's perceived usefulness and perceived ease of use. And an employer needs both, said Carly Kroll, a global partner in sales education lead at Care AR, a Xerox company. She said, quote, if it's only one or the other, you're not necessarily going to get acceptance and adoption. So it could be easy to use, but is it really useful? Is it actually making a difference in my job? Or it might be really useful, but it's hard to use and I feel frustrated, I'm embarrassed, or I'm anxious when trying to use it because it's so difficult, then I don't want to use it. And so you really need both of those perceived usefulness and perceived ease of use together. And Kroll talked later in the story about the potential for embarrassment as one possible barrier. If you feel like you might fail in using something new, you're probably not going to want to use it. And so while working for a consulting firm in 2020, 
Kroll wrote a guide on technological acceptance, which was based on her master's thesis at Marquette University. In that guide, Kroll details six steps to improve acceptance. Briefly, those are informing employees, simplifying information about the change, using visual materials such as infographics, photos, and videos, finding quote-unquote digital influencers in the organization to help pave the way, using demonstrations and hands-on training, and encouraging and supporting employees. And, and briefly, digital influencers are also known as digital champions. Are, they're well-regarded people with an organization that, as the term implies, can sway opinion. Uh, another reason for technological resistance, which we mentioned earlier, is fear of job loss or job change. Once again, in, engaging employees early in the process of a technological change can help alleviate some of those fears. For example, one of SAIF's policyholders in Oregon worked with its employees to determine where robots or cobots can help them perform the most annoying job. And Freewin said, this isn't a job that anyone really wanted. It caused a lot of repetitive injuries. And the employees got to be creative and build this robot. So again, the employer engaged the employees to figure out what was, you know, the most dangerous job or what was the most annoying job and, and kind of and gave them a chance to, to kind of help out and be part of that change. And again, this is where a company culture and safety culture can help. If workers and their perspectives are respected, that can pave the way for a smoother transition. And Freewin gave the example of a company that used drones, and that technology actually allowed some employees in the company the opportunity to continue to have a job when they couldn't perform physical labor anymore. And uh, Belie Ross said, that's where culture comes in. Maybe this technology is going to take away that job, but how do we harness those skills and those capabilities into different ways? And that's where you'll see the difference between good and bad companies in the adoption of technology. Uh, now, culture also comes into play with another concern, privacy. And there's a, a great example in the story in, of an SAIF project involving telematics. And that's a technology that tracks actions such as hard braking and rapid acceleration in vehicles, among other things. And one of the 10 companies in that project didn't let employees know why telematics were being placed into some of their vehicles. So what employees did was simply avoid driving those vehicles and Blaney Ross said one turning point was when the company used the system to reward good driving behavior with bonuses instead of using it as a form of punishment. You know, like you were under this level of hard braking or rapid acceleration or this metric for this month. So we're going to give you an extra $200 in your paycheck. And a company can also build and maintain trust by quote-unquote walking the walk and how they use data, you know, showing employees that the organization is trustworthy. We're not using data to track how many times someone is taking breaks or going to the bathroom, for example. And, and Bellini Ross said it's really easy to tamper with telematics or even take them out of a vehicle. But she also said, if you have a good culture, your employees aren't going to be fearful of their jobs and they won't feel like they're going to have to take out the telematic system or lose their job. So the important step, again, is communicating with employees early in the process of a change and also continually. There's also emphasizing the reason for implementing a new technology. And Freeman gave this example. And if you can imagine this, this quote from her is kind of a company talking to its workers. And this is why we're doing this for our company. It's to help us send you home at the end of the day. We don't want to have to send an email to your coworkers or make a call to your family that you died in a motor vehicle crash. So it's really making it personal, as is important in many aspects of safety. Well, thank you, Alan, for all your efforts on this story and for helping to bring our readers new insights.
If you want to read this feature story and other news from around the safety world, please check out the January issue of Safety and Health Magazine or visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Every safety professional has a unique story. So what's yours? Safety and Health Magazine wants to hear about your unique path into the occupational health and safety field for our My Story column. Start the new year off right by sending your submission to safehealth at nsc.org and share the road you traveled in your career journey of keeping workers safe and healthy. When safety professionals want to connect with workers and inspire change, one of the best ways to do that is through storytelling. And with us this month to talk about the values and the benefits of stories and safety is Jack Jackson, one of the most popular speakers at the NSC's annual Congress and Expo event, which will take place this year in late October in New Orleans. Jack is a senior safety consultant at SafeStart, and he knows a good story when he hears one. Jack, thank you so much for joining us on The Safe Side. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, Jack, where we wanted to start with you is, could you tell us what makes a good story? Well, um, one of the things that makes a good story, a story has to be relevant uh, when, you, when you're sharing a good story. Also, it needs to be uh, a story that catches their attention. It needs to be entertaining. Doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be serious. Doesn't necessarily have to be funny either. But it needs to be a story that catches the, the audience's attention, uh, something that they can relate to and understand uh, and the points that you're trying to make in a story. I often tell people when you tell a good story, you want to enact or create the vicarious experience. Even if a person hasn't been through the exact same situation, you can create the vicarious experience by enacting some of their senses, using some of their senses. And a good example that I use for that is the experience of being in a paper mill, uh, enacting the senses there. And one thing about being in a paper mill, if you've ever been in one, one thing you'll never forget about it, and that is the smell. I often tell people if the smell was music or if it was sound, they'd have you turn it down. But the people in the paper mill tells me that that smell is the smell of money. So uh, speaking of relevance, are there ways to know if your safety story is relevant? A couple of things you need to know to, to, when it, you're looking at if your safety story is relevant. First of all, define what point it is you're trying to make in this story. Uh, telling a story just for the sake of telling a story or just for the sake of getting them to, to laugh is not um, it's not a good way to make the to make it memorable. To make it memorable, it has to be uh, relevant, first of all, to the audience. The audience has to be able to understand what it is you're talking about. And you need to know your audience. Know, uh, sometimes I know that we I speak as I get older, I find myself speaking to the group that is much younger than me. And sometimes I may say some things that they may not necessarily relate to very well. So I have to I have to know my audience and know who it is that I'm speaking with. What benefits can safety professionals gain through storytelling? Oh, you gain huge benefits through storytelling. It gives you credibility, number one, uh, credibility that you know what it is you're talking about. Um, it also uh, gives credibility because it'll show the individual that you're experienced. Uh, the benefits also is that storytelling is a great um, teaching tool, but it's also, I think it's a better learning tool because when you tell us a good story, the people will learn to 
um, the point that you're trying to make. I use often the example of tying a shoe. Uh, when I was growing up, I was told, taught how to tie a shoe with the story about the rabbit that ran around the tree and then he popped back up through the hole. And uh, I don't necessarily remember the entire story, but I do remember how to tie my shoes. So telling that story helped me remember uh, how to tie my shoes when I first started tying my shoes. So that's that's a very good benefit of uh, storytelling. Jack, I'm sure you've come across this in your career, but how do we encourage others to, to share their stories? Oh, man, I'm going to tell you, one of the ways you to encourage other people to share their stories, first and foremost, and I'll say this in, in almost every session I talk about when I'm t- training people to be trainers or instructors or or even training our consultants at Safe Start, the first, the number one thing to encourage anybody to share their story is you have to humble yourself and be willing to admit that you've made some mistakes. Be willing to admit that you've learned from some of those mistakes that you've made and that it's okay to admit that you've made the mistakes and talk about what it is that you've learned from those mistakes. If we can't, uh, if we can't, um, uh, admit our own faults. We can't really expect other people to admit their faults either. But once you start to tell a story and you open up um, a story, or open up with with people and share stories with them, they're going to be more apt to share stories with you. And one of the ways I do that is when I tell a good story, uh, I try to enact emotions in my story, um, whether they're upbeat emotions or downbeat emotions. I try to enact emotions because emotions make a difference. They also evoke change, but they're very powerful because they attach to our human our human consciousness. Uh, it's a direct uh, route to our, our senses. And when I think about emotions, I think about, I often use a quote that um, people will forget what you, may forget what you said they may forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And that's a quote by Maya Angelou. And I've used that my, not my entire life, but my entire adult life. I've used that. I want to make sure that the people feel something when I share a story with them. That's a great quote. Uh, so what resources would you recommend for listeners who want to become better storytellers? Uh, one of the best resources that um, I use to help myself, and I don't know if we mentioned this or not, but I'm actually an ordained minister as well. So I uh, I actually use a lot of stories, um, biblical stories, number one, are good in the church setting, but in the real life setting, a good resource for people to, to get a good story is experience. Some of the experiences that they've had, um, being able to tell that in a story format, is very good, but outside resources, uh, I don't really have any particular books that I've read uh, on storytelling. I actually tell people that my storytelling was um, forced upon me by my father and my grandfather because whenever I asked them a question, they would never give me the answer directly. They always had to tell me a story first, and uh, then they'd ask me what did I think, and I'd walk away wondering why I even bother to tell them the ask them the question if they were going to make me figure out the answer for myself. But uh, there is a there is a, a book out there that I've heard of, but I haven't read it before, but I hear a lot of things about it, a book called uh, Building a Story Brand. And I, I haven't read the book yet, but I hear that it's a great book. And 
the reason why it rings a bell in my memory because two or three people have have actually asked me if I've ever read that book and it's it's on my to-do list but I haven't gotten there yet well Jack we truly appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us on this topic and as journalists we really enjoy hearing stories from our sources out there in the safety world. Uh, Jack, we thank you so much for being our guest this month on The Safe Side, and we wish you a very safe and very healthy new year. Okay, thank you for having me. As we approach the end of this episode, it's time to discuss what we've learned in the past month, whether on the job or off. To get things started, well, first, uh, I would like to thank Alan for reintroducing Luddite into my uh, my recall. I remember my uh, my best man at, at my wedding. Um, he's a been a stat professor at schools who wear red, North Carolina State and Cornell. Well, he made me see red by uh, calling me a Luddite in his speech. Um, I won't go into the full context, but it it fit the the definition that Alan revisits. Uh, something about me having a poncho in college versus uh, an umbrella and just a couple other things. So at any rate. When Alan discussed that a, a bit ago on this episode, that's what I thought of. Um, another thing, and pretty soon folks are going to think I'm obsessed with uh, the San Diego Convention Center and surrounding hotels, but um, didn't dawn on me until recently that, as we've discussed on our Congress episodes, you know, the, the, the history huddle and so forth, but I'll have you know that the last two times baseball's winter meetings were held in San Diego, uh, NSC Congress and Expo also was held there both 2019 and this year, the, the meetings are wrapping up as uh, as we record this. So a couple of uh, those things. Um, Barry, how about yourself? Well, Kevin, I have an interesting item that I wrote for safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Uh, there is a new e-tool from CPWR, the Center for Construction Research and Training, and it is designed to help manufacturers, distributors, and importers of products that contain nanomaterials strengthen their data sheets. And this tool is free and it's interactive. Um, it's a really unique uh, tool from the folks over at CPWR. Um, so check that out. You can type in uh, eTool, CPWR eTool, in the search bar at safetyandhealthmagazine.com uh, to find that story. Alan, how about you? I'm I'm glad I could reintroduce the term luddite first of all in you know into this this podcast uh, it's really a goal of mine um, not really and I, I'm always thankful for San Diego tidbits as well um, the the interesting story that I have appears on our website safetyandhealthmagazine.com and it's about um, fungal infections or soil fungi um, that would be the plural term uh, that. Have historically, so it's soil fungi that's been historically found in only certain regions of the country. Well, now those soil fungi, and which can cause infections, have now migrated to other areas of the country. And that's really important for workers in construction, landscaping, agriculture, other outdoor industri uh, industries. So, you know, a doctor may see symptoms of something, but think, well, you know, this fungus is usually not in our area. And there was actually kind of a, I don't know, it was kind of a, a humorous quote for these for these kind of stories. Um, at least I thought it was kind of humorous to me in some ways, but it was also enlightening. It was from one of the study authors. It said, every few weeks I get a call from a doctor in the Boston area, a different doctor every time about a case they can't solve. They start by saying, we don't have histoplasma here, but it really looks like histo. And I say, you guys call me all the time about this. You do have histo. But so this is something to, to kind of look out for if you 
are someone who works in, in these kind of industries that's outdoors or you supervise someone or you're safety professionals in, in these outdoor industries, um, I would definitely check out this story uh, about kind of uh, soil fungi. And again, that can cause, um, I, I believe, uh, certain kind of infections. I'm not going to pronounce the names of them because it's it, they're really long and, and difficult and I already have trouble with pronunciation. So uh, yeah, I, w- I would definitely check out this story. Well, thank you. Is there something important that you learned this month? Please share it with us via email at safehealth at nsc.org or use the hashtag SafeSide on social media. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this month's episode. We know that your time is valuable, and we appreciate you spending some of it with three of us. If you'd like to share some feedback, email us at safehealth at nsc.org. We'd also appreciate you rating and reviewing this podcast. To find stories such as my Tech Turns feature and all the latest news from around the safety world, visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Also, make sure you follow us on your favorite social media channel. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Original music for this podcast was composed by Steve Maslin. Thank you so much, Steve. Also, big thank yous to our NSC colleagues Ryan Gruntish, Amy Bellinger, Debbie Meyer, Paul Walensky, Karen Lord, Melissa Rominski, and Jennifer Yario for their work in making this podcast possible every month. We'll be back next month to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a little. In the meantime, please stay on the safe side.